Durham University's Palace Green Library is home to many medieval manuscripts, but among the most precious is one of just three surviving collections of poetry written by the hand of one Thomas Hockleave, 14th century civil servant, letter writer and poet. Laurie Atkinson puts some of Hockleave's literary output under the reading lamp as he argues that this disremembered figure deserves to be seen in his own right rather than hidden in the shadow of his immediate poetic predecessor, Geoffrey Chaucer. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2018. So in the next half hour, I want to introduce you to the poetry of the 15th century government servant, Thomas Hockleaf. I have an enduring fascination for Hockleaf. He was the subject of my undergraduate dissertation, and the manuscript of his poems in Palace Green Library is one of the most significant items in Durham's medieval collection. He is a 600-year-old bureaucrat with a fixation on Chaucer, yet his his anxieties towards money, mental health, and a fear of obscurity must be familiar to many pen or computer key pushers of the present. He's a bit like a 15th-century PhD student. Hockleave's situation on the fringes of Westminster governance helps to explain the means and ends of some of his best-known poetry, which includes pseudo-autobiography, an anti-Lollard remonstrance, an advice manual for the future King Henry V, and, tirelessly, requests for money. Today's talk is a literary critical appraisal of Hockley's work rather than a historical review. My focus is Hockleaf's often neglected devotional verse, a way into his corpus that can help us to understand the poetic strategies with which this government clerk sought remembrance both for his purse and his soul. Thomas Hockleaf was employed as a clerk of the office of the Privy Seal from around 1387 until soon before his death in 1426. He would have been tasked with producing the warrants, missives, and even diplomatic letters to be authenticated by the Privy Seal. And we have evidence in the Chancery Rolls and the receipt of the Exchequer and the Great Wardrobe for the Crown's often delayed payments for this service. Hockley's poetry makes heard a more personal and usually indigent voice from within the bureaucratic substructure of Lancastrian England. In La Mal Regla, we see Hockleaf's self-reproof of his wanton youth and subsequent poverty. In the framing narrative to the pseudo-autobiographical work known as The Series, the clerk reveals a six-month period of madness during which he was unable to work and again poor. And in the Regiment of Princes, dedicated to Prince Henry of Monmouth in around 1413, Hockleave flaunts his literary pretensions by claiming the personal acquaintance of the deceased Geoffrey Chaucer, a poet whom he despairs to emulate. Today, most celebrated amongst Hockleave's literary outputs are the three manuscripts of his poetry written in his own hand, the Hockleave holographs. Durham University Library Cosin Manuscript 539 is a tantalisingly intimate witness of the series. The two other manuscripts, the Huntington Holographs, San Marino Huntington Library Manuscripts HM744 and HM111, have been influentially described as the first collected poems in English. 
And between them, the three manuscripts in Hockley's hand contain almost complete texts of all his English verse, except the long regiment of princes. Despite an inauspicious critical reputation in the first half of the uh, 20th century, in the last 30 years, Hockleaf has been revivified as a deliberate self-anthologizer in a shifting bureaucratic culture, as an innovator in literary reflexivity and self-fashioning, and an illuminator of the politics and patronage of early 15th century England. Paradoxically, however, given the holograph's centrality to Hockley's Chaucerian, Lancastrian, and essentially secular critical reputation, Remarkably little attention has been paid to the devotional and specifically Marian verse that makes up much of their contents. Seemingly effaced of the distinctively Hocklevian voice of the series, the Regiment of Princes, and the occasional and begging poems, it is perhaps the religious poetry's perceived conventionality that has relegated it to the margins of Hockleaf's scholarship. John Burroughs' typically astute observation of the greatest limitation in Hockley's poetry, that Hockley entirely lacked his master Chaucer's ability to speak in voices other than his own, is perhaps also the source of the poet's greatest appeal. Here is one telling explanation for the often blinkered engagement with Hockley's devotional verse. Absent is the autobiographical detail and personalised practical purpose that enlivens his secular writing. Hockley's devotional voice, belonging to what Douglas Gray has described as the reflective or meditative lyric, speaks not only for himself, but in the name of many. It is my contention that this devotional verse deserves critical reappraisal for its illustrative nuance within a nevertheless Hockleyvian poetic. There is a shared register of petition in Hockley's secular and religious poetry, one that speaks to the often analogous presentation of royal and divine patronage. Whether a speaker's desired benefactor is his lord, his god, or a mediator between them, whether the supplicant is the privy seal Clark Hockleave and his associates, or the universalised Christian devotee, Hockley's petitioner-patron relationships are similarly beset by anxieties of deference, duty, and decorum. The solutions to these challenges are most obviously expedient to his overtly begging poems. Yet the distinctiveness of this petitionary register is in part derived from the features it shares with the devotional verse. I want to draw attention to just one aspect of that register, the demonstration and evocation of reciprocal remembrance between a petitioner and his patron. I take as my focus perhaps the least conventionally Hocklevian item in Huntington Library manuscript HM744, the prologue and the legend of the monk who clad the virgin by singing Ave Maria. Following a brief introduction of this text and its devotional context, I will turn to consider the precise connotations of the remembrance proffered by its prologue. At once an act and an object of commemoration, and with parallels to the complaints and dedications inscribed elsewhere in the Hockleaf holographs, the monk who clad the Virgin demonstrates the multifaceted function of late medieval petition, the convenience of remembrance to both secular and spiritual ends. The story of the monk who clad the Virgin by singing Ave Maria, or how the Psalter of the Blessed Mary was first found, 
is the sixth extant item in HM744. The text follows two lyrics that make supplication to Mary for intercession on man's behalf. This item, also concerning the Blessed Virgin, begins on the recto of folio 36, where there is a side note in Hockley's hand stating that the work was commissioned by one T. Marlborough. Immediately preceding the legend proper is a three-stanza prologue lauding Mary's role in mankind's salvation as the mediatress between man and God. In a final stanza, the legend itself is introduced as an appropriate or convenient devotion in Mary's honour. Now sin that lady, noble and glorious, to all mankind hath so great charity, that in this slipper life and perilous, staff of comfort and help to man is she. Convenient is that to that lady free we do service, honour and pleasance, and to that end here is a remembrance. What follows is a relatively typical legend belonging to a group of miracles associated with the proper recital of Our Lady's Psalter, what in modern times we know as the Rosary. A monk of the Abbey of St Giles has been taught by his father to say 15 Ave Marias each day. One Saturday, having said his prayers in his father's Lady Chapel, the Virgin appears to him wearing a sleeveless garment. Marvelling, the monk inquires, what garment is this and hath no sleeve? She informs him that through his prayers, this clothing thou hast me woven. Now, however, he must increase his daily observance to 150 Aves, joining a paternoster to every, to every tenth, sounds like a lot of fun, in the memory of the Annunciation, the Nativity and Mary's Assumption. The monk complies after her doctrine and informing, and when the Virgin returns, she is freshly arrayed and well, with sleeves affixed to her garment. She instructs the monk to return to the abbey, where the convent teach thou for to say, my Psalter, as before have I taught thee. The monk obeys, disseminates her Psalter, and is soon made abbot of the abbey. In a return to the didactic mode of the prologue, the poem's final lines extend Mary's and the monk's informing to its devotional audience at large. And now hereafter, the better to speed, and in her grace, cheerly for to stand, her psalter for to say, let us fond or begin. The crux of the poem, both its subject and its end, is remembrance. First attested in Middle English around 1330, the term has obvious semantic overlap with the earlier memory memorial and the later commemoration. In phrases such as quorum to or having in remembrance, its meaning bears close affinity to the cognitive sense of the Middle English verb remembran, to bear in mind or to refresh someone's memory. This potential slippage between remembrance understood as an internalised process or act of remembering and remembrance as a tangible or emblematic memorial with the potential to stimulate that process is exploited to great effect by Hockley. In Middle English devotional verse, remembrance is often used to connote the honour due to the divine or as frequently man's dread of death and damnation. It has a cognitive and it has a cognitive and emblematic, but also a textual significance. Indeed, as we shall see, one form usually predicates another. I count nine occurrences of the term in the religious poems of HM 744 and HM 111. 
11 more of the related terms remembrance and memory. The subjects and objects of these acts or stimuli of remembering appear in three main configurations. First, the recollection of Christ's passion by God the Father, Mary or Christ himself as the motivation for their intercession on man's behalf. Second, the entreaty that God the Father, the Trinity or in particular Mary remember the faithful and think not on their sins. And in two striking instances, the second of which appears in the prologue to the monk who clad the virgin just quoted, the duty of mankind to do service, honour and pleasance towards their mediator Mary in exchange for her intercession. It will not be possible in the time available even to mention all of the relevant texts in which Hockley's speaker can be seen to engage or draw attention to this kind of reciprocal remembrance between a supplicant and a divine or human addressee. The role of texts in this posited salvific or financial exchange is of particular interest in relation to Hockley's activities as a maker and dedicator of books. It should alert us to the performative, but also the textual connotations of the remembrance introduced in the prologue to the monk who clad the virgin. Before returning to that devotional text, I would briefly draw attention to one secular analogue in the Huntington holographs. The ballad and chanson made for my, my master Henry Summer that appears on folios 37 to 38 of HM111. In this item, Datable between 1408 and 1410, Hockley writes on behalf of himself and his Privy Seal associates, Bailey, Heath and Offord, for the payment of their overdue Michaelmas annuities by the then under-treasurer of the Exchequer, Henry Summer. In a seasonal pun on the addressee's name, Summer is compared to the sun which, with his beamers of brightness, to man so kindly is and nourishing. The speaker envisages that, with a clerk's salaries paid, their Christmas time revels might begin. The ballad ends, and yet this roundel shall we sing and say in trust of you and honour of your name, followed by a roundel with a decorated initial that is transcribed in full here on the slide. It ends, to heavy folk of thee the remembrance is salve and ointment to their sickness, for why we thus shall sing in Christmas. And then the burden, summer that ripest man is sustenance with wholesome heat of the sun's warmness, all kind of man thee holden is to bless. The appearance of remembrance in the seventh line of the roundel suggests the multiple available readings for this proffered laudatory text. The verses have ostensibly been inscribed in the trust and honour of Henry Summer and his anticipated remuneration of Hockleave and his associates. Yet is the salve to heavy folk described in lines 38 to 39 the remembrance that Summer has for the needy? Or is this instead the comfort derived from the petitioner's own meditation on their benefactor's friendly governance? That the roundel will only be performed should the clerks receive their payments would imply that the giver of this particular remembrance is summer. Yet by appearing in the holograph, the text, if it has not already performed this laudatory purpose, certainly does now. That the piece is arranged as a roundel, with a repeated refrain as if to be sung, suggests that, within the fiction of the ballad at least, this is an object not simply to be admired, but to be used, 
a stimulus rather than an artifact of remembrance. It will be sung, it seems, regardless of whether summer pays the clerks. Indeed, it is crucial, crucial in securing that payment. The trust which it celebrates, it also enacts. Summer not only warrants such praise, that praise is his reminder to warrant it. The roundel's final line before the last burden does not determine who is holding who in remembrance in this text. It is unambiguous, however, in the necessity of that act of remembering. For why, i.e., for this reason, we thus shall sing in Christmas. The similarities here to the reciprocal remembrance encoded in the prologue to the monk who clad the Virgin are manifold. The line, and to that end, here is a remembrance, presents the ensuing legend as at once a textual memorial of the Virgin's mercy towards the monk, but also, in the emblem of the recited Aves weaving her garment, an origin story for her Psalter, how it was first found, and the means by which the Christian devotee might seek similar favour. Like the round elder summer and the monk's prayers in the legend itself, this text or textile honours and implicitly motivates the intercession of the Virgin. This motivation purports to operate not simply through self-interest, but rather convenience, the mutual compulsion of the supplicant and addressee towards a relationship of patronage that is beneficial to both. The prologue and the legend of the monk who clad the Virgin enacts a properly functioning textual patronage exchange of the type envisaged but awaiting reciprocation in the framing narratives to Hockley's larger literary projects, the prologue to the Regiment of Princes and the dialogue with a friend in the series. The gratifying level of agency granted to the individual supplicant, otherwise at the mercy of a seemingly impenetrable royal or cosmic scheme, is as welcome in Hockleaf's secular as in his religious poetry. As a devotional verse with universal utility, the specifically salvific exchange depicted in The Monk Who Clad the Virgin is not restricted to a single supplicant. The narrator's final exhortation, her psalter for to say, let us fond, directs the reader, like the incumbents of the abbey, to imitate the monk's exemplary practice. In a final amplification of the service, honour and pleasance prescribed in the prologue, the devotee is directed not merely to recite, but to fond, attempt or undertake the Psalter. Mary is finally presented as a patron of remembrative texts, and every participant in the reduplication of her Psalter is the shared beneficiary of the monk's commission. My intention in this talk has been to draw critical attention within the still burgeoning field of Hockley's studies to the devotional verse that makes up so considerable a proportion of the poet's literary output. One strategy of revalorising Hockley's somewhat unfashionable religious poetry has been to suggest its point of intersection with the Hockleyvian poetic constructed from his overtly bookish and self-referential secular works. In late medieval England, there are few aspects of literature or life in which religion is entirely invisible. Though it is important to remember, that, remember here that influence can work in both directions. I would urge caution in overstating the analogy between Hockley's devotional verse and his begging poetry in its entirety. 
not least amongst their differences, devotional verse is typically conceived as a depersonalised mode with universal significance, whilst begging poems are shaped to the needs of an individual on a particular occasion. That said, it is difficult to ignore the striking moments in which the petitionary register identified in Hockley's religious poetry is redeployed in the service of the financial complaint. My analysis of this register today has been largely confined to Hockley's shorter works in the Huntington holographs. But an alertness to its potential can inform our readings of some of the most familiar and less obviously petitionary passages in Hockley's longer works. Whether his justification of the Chaucer portrait included in the Regiment of Princes, that they that hang on him lost thought and mind by this painture may again him find, the admonition in the address to Sir John Oldcastle that the heretic Lollard have of thy sinners heavy remembrance and rise up a manly knight out of the slough, or in Hockley's complaint in the Durham manuscript, the destabilising account of how the substance of my memory went to play. Anxious evocations of memory and remembrance are recurrent in Hockleaf. Repeatedly, an appeal for reciprocal remembrance becomes not simply the means, but the end of petition, by asserting the agency of the supplicant as well as their intercessor. Hockley's petitionary strategy may be a response to 15th century financial and confessional concerns. Yet in its basics, his approach conveys an enduring message of consolation. A hopeful subject recalls an ostensibly pre-existing concord or authority, but in fact is with that very evocation of the promise of well-being that its attainment in the present can begin. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.